Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Daniel Simpson, who's uh, one of our own at uh, the OCHS, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, where I also do some work. Um, We'll be speaking to Daniel about his brand new, maybe not even out yet. (laughs) Coming soon, coming soon in January, yes. Coming soon to a to a, to a, to a, to a URL near you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also in bookstores if they're open, but we'll have to wait and see. Yes, that. well, <laughs> who needs physical reality when we have? Uh, the, the book is called "The Truth of Yoga," uh, and the subtitle, uh, lovely soundbite, and the subtitle is even more enticing: a comprehensive guide to yoga's history, texts, philosophy, and practices. What more could one need? Daniel, how on earth did you come up with this? Um, and, and also, how is it that we've never spoken before this podcast? <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me now, Raj. Um, yeah, uh, well, I guess the, the, the way that our paths have crossed is via the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies. And uh, really, that's the, the sort of key ingredient in why I've come to write this book. I have been practicing yoga for, for quite some time now. I've also been researching the history and philosophy of yoga to try and unconfuse myself for quite a long time. And that wound up with me doing a a master's degree at SOAS in London with uh, some of the the foremost researchers in the field of of, of yoga history. And after that, I don't know. I mean, I was I was unsure whether to go further with scholarship or not. And at that time, I found the OCHS. Um, I'd had it suggested to me earlier in my my searching that uh, taking some of their courses would be a good way to get a grounding in, in, in the traditional text. And a lot of what I studied at SOAS was analytical. Um, you know, that's the nature of uh, higher level study in the academy. It's uh, picking things to pieces um, and uh, mainly focusing on you know, scholars' arguments about things. And that's all very interesting. Obviously, that's how knowledge advances. But um, if you actually want to get a handle on the yoga tradition, um, that's only one part of it refracted through a prism. And I wanted to go back to the, the basic text. And we weren't really given much time to focus on that as part of the, the, the master's degree is assumed you're studying them. And so through my, my work teaching at the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies, I feel I've just gone over and over the same ground again and again and again and got clearer in my own mind about uh, you know, some of the, the basic unifying messages of, of, of some of the key yoga texts and also the things that distinguish them, how, how, how yoga is different in different contexts. And again, that's all assumed at, at higher level study, but I felt that you know, the work I'd done to make sense of things for myself would be helpful to others, given that you know, I'd basically been looking for a book like this 10, 15 years ago and couldn't find one. Um, my background before I got into all of this was uh, as a journalist. So you know, I'm, I'm kind of a specialist in hoovering up large amounts of information, digesting them and regurgitating them in, in small, you know, e- easy to access packages. And so my aim in writing the book was to distill important facts about yoga history, uh, important aspects of yoga philosophy, the main ideas of the, uh, the core traditional texts, and you know, put them in little 500 word articles, 100 or so of them that uh, can you know, easily be dipped into, but together they build up a you know, really comprehensive picture of 
how yoga has developed, where it came from, uh, and what we might make of it today. And ultimately, that's the real key. It's aimed at practitioners first and foremost, but I think it's also therefore got a role for, for people who are teaching yoga, even in an academic context, um, because it's that sort of foundational primer that gives people, you know, a sort of stepping stone from the world of yoga practice into the world of yoga studies. This really is a, a rich and important tension that we never stop talking about, whether or, or rubbing up against, whether at OCHS or on the podcast, or for me, really as a way of life, uh, the, the tension, the creative tension between uh, practicing life and and scholarship. You know, one of my favorite maybe analogies is, you know, studying music theory versus being a musician or jamming or playing or, or appreciating music, being moved by music. And and, and they, they, they ideally, ideally, the one informs the other in some way, shape, form although theorists need not be musicians and 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 there are many who are innate musicians who need not the theory or 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 to learn how to to, to note note music um but it, it, you know the och is uh, as you well know i'm fairly new there but it, it really is part of the magic there is this is that it attracts you know scholars and seekers and practitioners alike mm. the material is presented obviously um uh, in a responsible academic manner, but there's so much room to, to draw in the insights and the life of those who may be on a path, who may practice, who may choose to embellish uh, our understanding of it through the, the either the chat forum or, 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 or in tutorials or whatnot. And, and this tension, I think it's really important. I think it's, it's at the heart of why this is the book you wanted to have 15 years ago, but didn't exactly. exist because, yeah. because the, 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 the sort of tacit integration, if you will, of these two aspects of self, um, in my perspective, maybe just my circles, it's really sort of coming to the fore in this generation of scholarship, especially in the yoga world. Would you agree with that? Um, I would. Yeah. I think um, if I remember rightly, there's, uh, there's due at the, the upcoming AAR to be a panel on the scholar practitioner. There's, uh, there's also a you know, brand new publication from Routledge on, on, you know, the, the, the whole discipline of yoga and meditation studies, about you know, 40 chapters or so, I think by, by various scholars, one of which is on that very topic, the, the nature of the scholar practitioner. And I think, I don't know, even then, you know, there's still, there's a tension that can't be resolved within an academic context because of the nature of uh, higher level academic study and, and uh, what counts as uh, you know, sort of postdoctoral research effectively. Um, it's, uh, it's by its definition, picking things to pieces. It's, 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 it's not about building up a beautiful big picture. And in a way, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of traditions of practice are about dismantling you know, <laughs> mistaken images that we've, we've created of ourselves and for ourselves. But at the same time, you know, there is a tradition which has its own way of going about things and uh, engaging with reality. Um, and presenting that information uh, in an accessible way is deemed the business of almost sort of theology or of, you know, the world of gurus and not of, uh, you know, serious academic scholars. So while those who pursue higher study and uh, the foremost researchers in the field are most of them these days practitioners, uh, what they publish and what they choose to talk about in, a, in an academic context is always going to be slightly different in emphasis. And they you know, pretty much see the two things as separated. And it's very hard for them to bridge the two worlds in that world. However, obviously, some of them step outside of that world and do things very differently. They give talks in yoga studios. They, you know, to take an example that we're both very familiar with, with Seth Powell at Yogic Studies, who's really inviting people out of that context to present what they know to yoga practitioners. And uh, 
producing you know four-part courses where where you know there's still a lot of knowledge into you know much more comprehensible bite-sized chunks rather than requiring people to wade through footnotes and layers and layers of additional reading to tease out the meaning the meaning is you know immediately presented and put into context and, and made more accessible um but i think at the oxford center for hindu studies the, the assumption is completely different we're we're you know, presenting this material and i mean i should emphasize of course you know i'm a I'm a white English guy, and uh, you know, I wasn't brought up as a Hindu, so I, I'm a guest in someone else's house, as as Dr. Nick Sutton, the uh, director of the Continuing Education Program, likes to put it. So I need to tread carefully, but at the same time, you know, I've gone into that house for a reason. I'm inspired by some of the things inside, and I'd like to inspire other people with you know some of the discoveries I've made about them, and also really step back and let the tradition speak for itself, and uh, and not try and layer it with too much analytical interpretation of what it might mean in other contexts than simply, you know, as a guide to, to how to live well and how to make sense of life. One of the greatest ironies in 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 what you point out uh, about your your um, uh, I guess ethnicity or your, the package you're in, shall we say? <laughs> One of the greatest ironies <laughs> is that through the lens of classical Hindu philosophy. I could be, I could have been the white British guy for most of my lives, and you, <laughs> you the classically trained Hindu, nobody knows. Um, but this this tension that you refer to, um, and you speak obviously so insightfully and eloquently about, it's it's, uh, I don't know how to. There's so many thoughts, and I'm trying to share at the same time. Let me just get organized here. So, uh, let's take yogic studies, right? I recently agreed to do a course there. Uh, it's it's sort of in. It's right in the middle at this point, or will the second of four modules has been released this week. Mm -hmm. Of course, the, the course is available for, for online consumption beyond the actual live four weeks. And um, it's really crystallizing for me so much of what I've internalized and I do unconsciously. I'm sort of forced to articulate via the questions of this vibrant, engaged tribe, some of whom most of whom are interested in, in, in ideas and even ideals, some of whom are, are, are avid practitioners. And, you know, I come back to this sort of artificial but useful uh, scaffolding of the etic versus the emic paradigm, right? And, you know, both are important, but there's no way in which to speak to citizens of the globe but from the etic paradigm, because we can't assume somebody shares a worldview or, or presuppositions. And at the same time, and, th and that's why, you know, when you say it's skewed towards one way, I think that's, I, I, I agree. And I think that's the way it should be. At the same time, I think the, 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 the real power is staying in an etic paradigm without reducing or dismissing the emic paradigm. And I find that that's very difficult for most people people to do because it's easy to teach from an etic paradigm and be reductionistic in some way and it might even be easy for, to teach from uh, within a tradition and uh and not be particularly critical at times you know uh, and so I, that's what comes to mind as you're talking about this this tension i think you summed it up very well and uh, if i if i may again defer to to, to nick sutton um you know he's He's spoken about this in some ways as uh, you know trying to present a non-sectarian approach to this material because obviously there are various sampradayas that have their you know, in-house interpretations. I mean, let's take a text like Bhagavad Gita, which is you know, very, very much aligned with, with different readings and different philosophies that have grown out of it. And his objective in presenting that material is always to say, here are you know, the broad spectrum of possibilities, um, and here's how they all make sense, not to say that this one negates the others. 
Um, so that sort of, you know, I guess outsider-ish perspective is still there. However, the insider perspective is, is present in the form of trying to mine it for meaning and saying, even if you're going to go you know, in multiple different directions, the objective is to find meaning and to relate that back to life. And of course, one can question you know, all sorts of things about the Bhagavad Gita, some of its internal contradictions, some of the context that led to its production. Uh, you can get off on that you know, analytical paradigm as much as you like. But at the end of the day, most people have picked it up because they're looking for answers. Um, and uh, there are answers that are helpfully framed in that text. And I like the opportunity to explore what they are without at the same time throwing out that perspective. So I'm very happy to, you know, on the one hand, talk about uh, the deeper meanings of the karma yoga presented by Krishna and explore the, you know, the, the, the inherent contradiction of the fact that both Mahandi, Mahatma Gandhi and his assassin said it was the book that inspired them. Um, so, you know, we're, we're able to explore those things for ourselves and immediately that sparks a question. It's like, ah, okay, perhaps there isn't a 10 commandments chiseled in stone version of meaning when it comes to Dharma. Um, it's a, an ongoing question I have to explore for myself in relation to other beings. And, uh, you know, then we've, 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 we've sort of hit the sweet spot and we have an open discussion. And that's what the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies is all about. And in some ways, that's what a good, you know, graduate school seminar programme is also about, except, you know, in order to, to, to be allowed to stay in the room and particularly to stand at the front of it, you've always got to frame things a little bit more from the uh, detached perspective. And increasingly that sort of search for meaning tends to drift out of the picture because as you say it's hard to keep the two in you know in the right degree of balance to to meet the requirements whereas if the framing conditions are slightly different that balance is a little bit easier to find and I, th I think it's it's quite natural and uh, yeah, as you're finding for yourself teaching in these these online contexts it's it's what people are looking for so if that's your own in, inherent persuasion it's, it's 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 not so challenging to provide it after all well I have this um <laughs> Someone really threw me for a loop. So uh, I teach a yogic studies now. I, I tutor at OCHS. And um, for the last five years or so, I've been teaching privately online, mostly courses on the goddess. They're always of a mythological bent, narratological bent. Um, um, a quick footnote, I think narrative is great because you know you can one, one has the license to study narrative in a religious context the way one does in, in, in one studies Shakespeare. I mean, this is meaningful. This is related to the inner life and human experience. But um, as I was about to say, I was sort of for loop because after a recent course, um, what was it? Faces of Power, we're looking at the Devi, different aspects of uh, the Hindu goddess. Uh, a really astute student who had been studying courses uh, at various platforms for, for a decade, she says, you know, I would really um, love if you would put together an intro Hinduism course. Like I said, why on earth would you need a, an intro Hinduism course? You've been taking intermediate to advanced Hinduism courses for a decade. Uh, you come from a Hindu context, which has a Western education and, and all that. I think part of it is rediscovering intellectually uh, some of the, 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 the philosophical and spiritual essence of her heritage. Maybe that may be part of it, but let's put the life coach piece away for a moment. Uh, and I was, I was taken aback by her request. And then I sat on it and then I emailed her back and forth and I said, what is it you would like that you can't get like ready-made at a number of platforms? And you know what she, what she's looking for? She's looking for exactly that. How do we integrate? How do we present the material? Like she wants the history and the philosophy and the ideas in a way that's not divorced from lived practice or life wisdom or the inner life. She's not looking for theology or diksha. Right, she's looking for a continuing studies paradigm, 
but one that's somehow meaningful. And I just, uh, I just think um, there's a sort of a, a turning point happening uh, in education, in Hindu studies in general, especially in yoga studies, probably. Uh, and I think we're not going to fully discern what's happening, <laughs> maybe for another decade or two. But it's clear to me that something's afoot, and we're we're sort of unwittingly pushing it forward. I think. Indeed, and um, I think in some ways, you know, uh, it's partly a technologically driven thing. Obviously, uh, there's this sudden mass participation in programs at the click of a button, and uh, that's 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 changed the possibilities quite a lot. Um, before the places that were providing courses were almost by definition either academic institutions or religious institutions. So you picked your path. Um, and, and I think that was the challenge for me when I was first looking for things to read. Um, I mean, the whole field of yoga studies had barely begun at that time. I, I was completely unfamiliar with its existence. Instead, I was I started out as a, as a postural yoga practitioner, really. That's what got me actually grounded in a regular practice um, with with the Iyengar system. And so I had a shelf full of books by BKS Iyengar that uh, sometimes the deeper I tried to read into them didn't, didn't necessarily always make sense <laughs> or necessarily also um, prevent the kind of present the kind of overview that they were, you know, I, I guess, claiming to. Um, there was a lot of interpretation that rationalized the practice of Iyengar yoga. <laughs> and that was, that was fine and that was all, all very good and that was all grounded in traditional texts. But what I didn't find there, which is what I was really looking for, was an overarching narrative. You know, so you mentioned the word narrative, but I think it's actually overview. It's a map of the whole territory. It's to understand well, which bit of the territory am I being shown here and why? And if you go into a religious context, often you're just being shown a very, very small part of the available territory and told it's the whole universe. Um, and uh, yeah, that's all very absorbing. And you can learn a lot that way. But uh, if you actually do want to know what other parts of the world exist, then, you know, it's quite tempting to go over to the academic side of things. And there you might get this wonderfully detailed map. But, you know, as we've already sort of explored, the map isn't the territory um, and perhaps uh, can be so far removed that it's, uh, it's not actually that good a guide. <laughs> it's somehow um, methodologically uh, divorced from the thing that it's trying to talk about. It's, it's like reading a sort of a Victorian description of something in the 21st century. If you put your put your energy into it, you can get your head around it. Otherwise, it's like, well, what are they talking about? This is something completely different. Um, and I think somewhere in the middle of that is the fusion of the two things. To acknowledge, as I was suggesting with you know, some of the courses at the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies, the possibility of taking this down any of those, you know, religious turnings off the main street, <laughs> because anywhere that you go has to you know, locate itself somewhere. We can't be everywhere. Um, and yet at the same time to try wherever possible to keep flying up the helicopter high enough that you're looking to show that there are different jumping off points um, and therefore trying to facilitate the possibility of somebody exploring them. So inevitably that kind of approach is always going to be, I guess, somewhat introductory um, because at some point people are going to choose one of these paths and they'll need to go deeper down one of them. But my aim in writing this book, I suppose, was to provide that service. And I think a lot of these online courses provide that as well. They might inspire people to study deeper, um, whether it's in a religious context or an academic context. And increasingly, I think it will push both of those worlds to adopt a little bit more of the other. And that's, that's, that's what I find inspiring. Uh, very well said. Now, uh, speaking of the book, which we, talk, which we should be speaking about, uh, why don't you give us the bird's eye view of the book in terms of how it's structured, its, its constituent parts? 
Well, I suppose it's basically, you know, a brief history of yoga is the, the sort of nutshell version of it uh, for, from, from the earliest available evidence to what people are doing in the 21st century and calling yoga. Um, and I've broken that down into, into four main sort of historical chunks. Um, the very earliest period that's uh, somewhat murky. It's, it's hard to pin down when yoga began, but we can certainly, from the earliest texts onwards, uh, have some idea of you know, some of the themes that have influenced yoga practice even if yoga practice itself isn't taught in the earliest layer of the vedas um, and then we can also then move on to the second phase when there is a lot of systematization of yoga whether that's in the mahabharata broadly in the bhagavad-gita specifically in patanjali's sutras we start to get you know something much more systematized and uh, from there there are different flavors of yoga that, uh, that emerge particularly in tantric traditions and then through their influence on, on physical yoga practice, what becomes known as Hatha and Raja yoga. And uh, those are really the building blocks of the fourth phase, the development towards what we think of today as yoga. And, and that sort of modern period in a way really goes back to the late medieval era and uh, the evolution of ever more complex physical techniques. And then really this sort of late 19th, early 20th century revolution in India that, that completely changed how yoga was presented and without which we probably wouldn't in the West be so into the practice. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's been packaged in a way that was, you know, very, very acceptable to Westerners. But it's always, you know, interesting to remember that that packaging took place in India by Indians for their own reasons. Uh, there's, I mean, there's, before we get into more of the content, we sort of glossed over, you mentioned in passing, the structure of the book, um, um, the style, and I think it's, it's, it's important to foreground and highlight because it's very unique, um, where you have like these uh, huge ideas or themes that are really important, and then you sum them, sum them up in 500 words. Uh, you know, and it's, it's not that, I don't mean that as a critique, I mean that as um a strength where um, someone can come in, oh, okay, what is Tantra? 500 words. You know, really useful content on that. Uh, gurus and gods, 500 words. Really useful content on that. Um, tantric mantras, you know, very insightful content on that. So um, I guess I'm asking you to say more about how that structure came about and how did you how did you manage it or organize it all like where was the the the, the inspiration or the model for this sort of writing i think it's twofold one is the uh, you know, the vast accumulation of material on my laptop hard drive over in you know, the previous 15 years in some desperate uh, ice pack on forehead attempts to make some sense of it which took several years that eventually turned into it we had me teaching on yoga teacher trainings which turned into this book um, but the uh, probably the more honest answer is my training as a news agency journalist. Um, I was, before all this, a foreign correspondent, um, at the last stage for the New York Times, before that for, for Reuters news agency. And you know, as a young reporter, I was trained to basically sum up the entirety of a story in a single sentence, preferably you know, fewer than 30 words. And I was told, if you can't do that, you haven't understood the story. So in, in essence, each of these chapters, each of these sort of 100 blog length articles is like a little news agency story. It tries to give you the overview, but it does it in that news agency style. It's facts and sources. So you've got quotes from traditional texts. Um, I've explained why I've interpreted them in a particular way. I've given the evidence that shows why I've done that. And I've tried to keep it as concise and digestible as possible. And ideally, you know, in the opening sentence, you know, the, the, the basic gist of what follows is, is contained. And I've been told in the past by scholars that that's, you know, that's, that's impossible with scholarship. And I, I, I guess I've sought to try and prove them wrong. I remember, <laughs> this is a, 
like the embarrassing anecdote. I was, I was dating a woman must have been 15 years ago now, and uh, she, she was doing a PhD. And I was still feeling a bit journalistic in those days. And I asked her to tell me what her PhD was about. And she said it was impossible. <laughs> and I said, come on, if you can't, basically that same idea, if you can't sum it up in a few sentences, you know, what on earth are you studying? Uh, and she was mortally offended at the suggestion that, you know, the, the depth of her engagement with this material could possibly be conveyed in, in such short, pissy terms. And I've always maintained that it can. Of course, if you actually want to back it up and, you know, tease, tease out of it all of the subtleties of meaning, clearly you're going to need pages and pages and you know, extensive references to show why you've reached these conclusions. But I don't think the masses want to read that stuff. And that's part of the problem at the moment with the you know, opening up of the field of yoga studies. A lot of the information that's produced by the scholars is for other scholars, uh, the written information. And so for me, that's been a wonderful resource. And all I've really done is a journalist's job of immersing myself in that material and trying to sum it up. Um, I've added to it my own understanding, my uh, engagement with the material from other perspectives. But in the end, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. It's just I'm doing something different to what they're doing. You're presenting the, the fruits of their labor in a way that's digestible for people. Not that the fruits are, are some obscured in some way. You're, you're, uh, they're getting the vitamin C, but you've cut the orange in such a way that they can actually... It's not that they suck on it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's so funny. Um, this is actually my first conversation with Daniel, although we we, we both uh, work at the OCHS. It's so interesting. And it's so interesting that my OCHS journey started off by interviewing Nick Sutton on this podcast about six months ago. It's a and, great catalyst, Raj. Yeah, what, what, and, what's next? <laughs> uh, we'll see. But, but what's interesting is I interviewed Nick and what came up was the teaching style, methodology and pedagogy. And it was clear that we were sort of kindred spirits on that regard. So then he said, oh, you want a tutor for us? And yada, yada, yada. And now who knows what's next? But what you say about communicating your scholarship in a succinct, comprehensible manner, I have to tell you, I could not agree more. Whenever someone comes to me for any kind of academic coaching, whether they want to write a grant proposal, whether they want to write a dissertation proposal, um, I use the analogy of um, chemistry, right? Uh, chemical compounds are really, really complicated and there's lots of um, elements, obviously, right? One thing I learned in chemistry that just blew my mind is that uh, the way in which they, they discovered uh, uh, the elements is the fact that they always combine in simple whole number ratios. Mm. Like in all of the chemicals and compounds in the universe, they always combine two to one, three to one, five to one, uh, eight to four. And, and for me, that's sort of a template in the back of my brain that no matter what you're trying to say as a scholar, if you can't understand it in terms of the, the simple whole number ratio or in terms of uh, a way in which you present it to someone who doesn't know the details, then um, you either don't fully understand your own work yourself or you don't understand why it's important or relevant to people in human bodies, right? Some of, and it's not that it's not. It's not that it's, 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 I find that scholars often, um, they struggle to communicate the relevance of their work. Right? It's not that it's irrelevant. It's just that they, there's a missing piece there. And it, it, anyways, I've probably said too much as it is. Well, no, I think, I, think, I think you're onto something and let's go there. I mean, it's the price of entry. It's, uh, you know, pe pe people are writing 
by and large as scholars for scholars in more senior positions than them. And that starts with the process of getting a PhD proposal approved. Uh, and uh, you know, if you're not jumping through certain hoops, it won't be deemed you know, sufficiently intellectually rigorous to count as that kind of project. And if you don't present it in certain terms afterwards, no one's going to publish it or pay any attention to it. But how many people are actually reading this? That's the problem. Um, so a lot of the published material that uh, you know, builds people's careers is aimed at an ever-shrinking audience. In fact, the more specialized they get, the narrower the audience. Um, and some of them master the, the ability to stand in two worlds, uh, doing that to build their reputation while at the same time fronting six-part documentary series on Netflix. Uh, and you know, there are scholars who do that, but uh, by and large, the vast, vast majority master the first bit and forget about the second bit. And I think, you know, in, in, inevitably the written part of work is, is always going to be subject to those tensions, partly because of uh, just the theoretical abstraction that's gone on in the study of humanities over the last hundred years um, and the layering of that onto basic information. That's deterred me a couple of times from, from you know, going into a PhD program. I've just, I've just shied away, I think, from framing what I want to say in those terms. I'm much more interested in keeping it simple and clear. And I think there's a fear a lot of the time that if you make things too simple and clear, it will be deemed insufficiently intellectually rigorous. And of course, you know, in the end, the, 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 the crucial determinant is original research. Um, but a lot of the time, the originality is in the interpretation. And the way that that originality is demonstrated is by engaging with these increasingly arcane layers of theory that people have been constructing to enable themselves to get PhDs for the past however many decades. Uh, and that's, that's become a problem. I mean, I recently reread uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which sort of ends with a, a showdown with a scholar all around this topic. Um, and it's about, you know, getting things back to, to just, you know, clarity. Um, and I think, as I say, there's a, there's a whole sort of complicated structural reason for that not being encouraged in, in the writing of academic work. But of course, a lot of the people who are producing that are still very capable, as, as we're discovering on these online platforms, are presenting their information accessibly, accessibly. so their discoveries um, are, you know, are not necessarily lost to the rest of the world. Um, I think the problem is just somehow, yeah, I guess, taking some of that back into an academic setting and encouraging people to, to focus on clarity, almost burying as much of the, 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 the complexity as possible below the line in some sort of footnoted space that yeah, people who are real eggheads are going to spend their time and yet maintaining something above there that is you know, as readable as you know, sort of a best-selling novel. Um, and there's no reason why a PhD can't be written that way. Well, there's, um, uh, uh, there's so much there. So, so you know, I, I can easily envision you finding a PhD program that will support your research interests. And it's, it's not such that it's one or the other, it's such that the complexity may be necessary in the advancement of knowledge, the engagement of theory, uh, whereas you you don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. So, so in my case, uh, my dissertation is on the great goddess myths of India, showing that they favor worldly values over otherworldly values, like royal ideology over ascetic ideology. And then we can go down the rabbit hole of nivrity over poverty or, 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 or Vedic values versus Upanishadic values. And, and then you can specialize, you, you can cater that, you can drill down depending on who you're speaking to. And, oh, you're, you're, you're a narrative theorist. Okay, well, I use Umberto Eco. I use Mary Douglas's book that she published before she died just to, so my dissertation could work, apparently. You know, <laughs> 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 because... What I internalize about narrative, she's, she, she painstakingly 
you know, demonstrates it. Umberto Eco, he demonstrates the obvious that stories shouldn't surprise you out of being sensible. They should make sense. They're, they're te- they tell you how to be read. He, this great semiotician does the work to come up with this simple truth about how narrative works. And my God, there's such complexity in terms of how he comes up with it. And I think that uh, sometimes as, as scholars, we can get lost in the in the forest. And sometimes we either we, can, we don't see the forest or we see it, but we can't communicate it. Or we, we somehow, um, uh, we somehow think that communicating the forest is, is, is beneath us or, or problematic in some way to overly simplifies, uh, simplify in that way. And I think it's a, just a question of, of how much of the iceberg you want to show based on who you're speaking to. And I think my favorite analogy is um, 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 the iPhone, the iPhone will do something for you. What will your, your dissertation do for me or whatever? Well, this will show you the value of, 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 of royal power in ancient India and, and the extent to which the divine mother is, is, is doing the same work as Indian king, protecting people. Great. They don't need to know how the iPhone works unless they're, 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 they're tech nerds, right? They don't need to know what happens inside the machinations of this thing. You know, th- that's a different sort of audience in terms of how the iPhone works versus you know, what the iPhone can do for you. But, That's uh, a very good, very good analogy. And um, you, you make your own dissertation sound very commendably clear, right? <laughs> but uh, I think what I'm talking about is less, less, less the sort of work that you've been doing. And some of the more, I guess, I'm hampered to a certain extent, uh, you know, although I've made valiant attempts over the years to, to actually get further with my Sanskrit studies, they're still fairly rudimentary. <laughs> and it's because I've never had to take any kind of assessment. So yeah. Everyone who studies Sanskrit <laughs> feels that way. I'm sure. No matter how long you study. <laughs> I'm at the point where, you know, realistically, I'm not going to undertake, you know, f- further study translating original material as, you know, as a philologist. And as soon as you step away from doing things that way, um, you really are confronted with 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 the need to to work with some sort of theoretical framework, and I just find them so off-putting. And uh, and and I think a lot of the time they 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 detract from the meaning. Uh, whereas you know some some of the people whose work I've relied on in this book, they're not hampered by that stuff. All they're really do- I mean they, they are to a certain extent when they're defending how they put together a critical edition. But uh, even then, you know that's the most of that stays under the hood, and and you get in the car and drive it and read the translation, and it, it either works to you or it doesn't. Um, and I think a lot of the time, the philological, it's very pure academia. It's, it's, I've got a lot of respect for it. And uh, I'm in awe of the, of the fact that they, they really stuck with it long enough <laughs> to get those language skills honed, or at least that they were, they were made to jump through hoops enough that they, <laughs> it's stuck. Um, I'll get there one day, maybe. But um, yeah, I, I, I think really just to come back to it, I, I had to make a choice at a certain point. Um, I turned down a place in a PhD program and decided to write this book. And uh, the reason I chose to do that was because this this was where my heart was. Um, the PhD program didn't feel that way. It felt like actually going back to high school, you know, I've done all this study and it was a US program. So I'd have to spend two years taking all these courses before I'm actually allowed to even get on with a dissertation. Um, and it just, it just didn't appeal. Whereas spending a couple of years getting this book finished did, uh, as well as focusing more on my teaching. And I loved your analogy of, of, of chemistry and elements. And that's what I've tried to do here is, you know, the periodic table of the elements of yoga and showing how over time, some of these sort of raw materials get combined in different combinations to produce new compounds. And those are the different schools of yoga, the different combinations of ideas in texts at different stages of you know, yoga's evolution. Um, 
And that's really the truth of yoga. There isn't one version of yoga. There are many ways in which you know, yogic ideas have been put together and presented and they've borrowed from each other and they've been you know, completely changed and you know, almost ripped to pieces and reconstructed. And, and yet it's still somehow recognizably yogic. And what I wanted to do is to show firstly how that's happened over time, but also to suggest that we in the modern era as modern yoga practitioners, uh, you know, are really inevitably going to do something similar. And what's important is that we acknowledge that and take ownership of it and, and say, you know, which of these elements speak to me, which are the ones I want to work with, um, which are the ones I might put aside and then be honest about that process that, you know, this is my synthesis of yoga for me right now because it works for me rather than pretending that what I'd like to hear in the 21st century is what Patanjali said, which is what way too many modern yoga teachers go in for. And it was that that bothered me. I felt like there was a lot of academic rigor that I've been exposed to that I found really valuable. And I wanted to bring that back into the world I'd come from um, and just, just get a few things straight. <laughs> you know, maybe having done that, I'll, I'll, I'll go back and you know, for, 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 for finally do the work so instead of me complaining and critiquing about you know, what, what's deficient in, in, in the academy, actually you know, step up to the plate and have a go at swinging the bat. It really is surreal to me that we're having our first conversation uh, on a podcast. And uh, uh, um, I realize it's more of a conversation than a podcast because uh, I've said probably more already in this podcast than I have in the last four combined. <laughs> uh, I hope that's okay. Um, Your podcast, I guess you can do as you please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it's not. No, it belongs to the new book network. But um, <laughs> uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully laughing is okay. <laughs> oh, um, no, it, it is my podcast. Anyhow, <laughs> but no, what I mean to say, it is my podcast in terms of the active ingredient, but it's typically about... Um, showcasing the work of the guests, but there's just such a interesting rapport here. And these ideas I think are so useful. Um, 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 there's this other, there's this parallel in the, in the story you mentioned uh, with me where I, I toughed it out and I, I did the PhD and then uh, the job market was wretched as usual. And I uh, counted my lucky stars that I was shortlisted at some American universities with like a quote unquote University of Calgary doctorate, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But nevertheless, I was offered a, a visiting assistant professorship uh, in, the, in the States. And it just, there were some uh, issues there, but they weren't insurmountable. I could have easily functioned just fine, but it just didn't feel right to me. Something felt off. And uh, a couple months later, uh, a certain person got elected as president. And I thought, okay, I'm thankful <laughs> I stayed in Toronto. And then I had to figure out how to support myself. I'm like, uh, I have this embarrassing side hustle of all in education. And now in the world of COVID, the academy is like, can you teach online? <laughs> like, we, we, that thing you were embarrassed about that you were doing on the side, um, we kind of need that now. Can you help us figure that out? Um, but I, I, I follow that instinct and 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 uh, a quote unquote proper academic path, whatever that means, whoever that means, to whomever may or may not unfold at some point. But I'm in this bizarre space of essentially functioning as a, a self-employed uh, academic uh, through through teaching and coaching, and it's um, it's really refreshing teaching online and teaching continuing studies. Um, teaching people who really value the academic rigor and the insights deeply, but they understand that that's an app. It's not the operating system of the course in a sense where, um, or maybe that's a bit too much because it typically is an ethic course, but they understand that there's an ethos of syncretism 
an ethos of, especially when teaching Hinduism, <laughs> of there are going to be different responses based on different epochs, different bents, different thinkers, different predilections. And, you know, I, uh, I introduce Hinduism as a jungle. Every intro Hinduism class I talk about, this is a jungle. <laughs> You're going to understand only one piece of the jungle at a time. You're not going to understand the whole jungle. Um, and uh, this sort of, this sort of, um, this understanding kind of it counteracts this internalized conceit uh, in, 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 in most intellectual thought that everything's a, project, a progression and can be charted linear, like in a way that we can understand from Patanjali to my guru in the yoga studio, what was the line of transmission? It's, it's, it's a conceit, right? It's useful in some sense, but no, this is a web a web of experience. And that's why all of these, I don't know, 200, how many, <laughs> how many, how many sections you have? 200, yeah, 200, uh, pretty much. Probably, probably not quite that many, about 100, I think, in total, 200 pages. So it's still, it's still a thin. Oh, you a, no, the sections, you have 193 uh, sections. No, 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 sorry. Yeah, like 100, yeah. But 100, 100 sections. Uh, and this is why it's so interesting that you can take any of these that obviously fit into the trajectory of yoga and a, a, a book or 10 could be written on any of these little pieces that interlace. Yeah. And indeed books have been written and that's, you know, to a large extent, what, what I spend a lot of my time doing was just trying to read, read more and read more and feel like I was actually on firm enough ground to dare to you know, stick something on the blank screen in front of my, in front of my eyes every morning when I was trying to make this book come alive. Um, I think it's, 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 it's really important just to acknowledge that, that uh, as you say, there aren't these clear lines. History doesn't unfold in this wonderful wig way. And a lot of the stories we're told as modern yoga practitioners aren't true. Um, but that's not to say, as is sometimes implied by that world of academic deconstruction, uh, that you know, everything's kind of meaningless. <laughs> and the people who are producing that sort of work aren't trying to say that anyway. But in the world of yoga practitioners, there's a prejudice against yoga scholars uh, because it's as if they're taking away people's toys and sort of you know, telling them Santa Claus isn't real, you know, whatever metaphor you want to come up with is <laughs> somehow spoiling the party. <laughs> and uh, there's no need for that whatsoever. All we're trying to do, I think, is, is shed a bit more light on how this process of evolution takes place. It's not linear. Um, it's, it, it's, it, it's all often not even traceable. Um, you know, some of the best minds who've done the most research are still only making educated guesses. They're not able to prove, you know, we're without doubt that certain things have happened. There are, there are these gaps in our knowledge because we're left only with, you know, this written record and yoga for most of its history is an oral tradition and uh, the texts were not the means of instruction, really. They're, they're sort of recorded, um, I guess, compendia of information that's been circulating for other purposes. Um, so as soon as we're looking at those, we're not actually looking at the history of yoga anyway. We're looking at the history of texts that have been written about yoga for whatever reason at whatever time. Uh, and so there's, there's a degree of humility that has to come into it, I think. And, and I guess that's really all I'm trying to encourage people to have is to, to acknowledge that there's something more than the stories they might have heard and to be curious about it. But at the same time, to say it's all it's all perfectly accessible. Um, and, you know, I'm certainly not going around wagging the finger, telling people what isn't isn't is and isn't yoga uh, or suggesting that there's any obligation to read this stuff. But if you're curious, um, I guess I felt that that's the missing part of, of the picture that I was hoping to contribute by writing this book. Here's a way in. Uh, and if you want to go deeper, you're going to need to read more. And there are many people out there providing that material, but it'll be so much easier to engage with 
if you've already had that you know, basic presentation of here's the jungle, uh, here are the primary, you know, sort of uh, flora and fauna, uh, flora and fauna, pardon me, I get my own tongue tied. Um, and uh, you know, here, here's, here's how you can navigate. Um, but you know, so at the same time, you're going to have to go and explore for yourself. <laughs> it's, a, it's a jungle out there. No, it's fantastic. So, for example, uh, uh, Daniel's um, uh, ordered the book uh, in terms of like the first section is early yoga, then we have classical yoga, and then the third section is hatha yoga, and then there's modern yoga. So, for example, if you look at the hatha yoga section, just here's some of the, the, the sort of appealing titles. Uh, he obviously has an eye to marketing, which is great. Uh, what is Tantra? Gurus and gods, tantric mantras, mystical images, the yogic body, raising kundalini, uniting opposites, uh, king of yogas, a body of knowledge. Like there are, there are these succinct sound bites that actually describe what the section's about. And it's it's appealing. It really is appealing for somebody who's trying to understand um, uh, the jungle of yoga as a beginner, you know. And as I was emphasizing, I mean, I, I tried to write them in such a way that they're all self-contained. Hopefully you could read any of those chapters and it would make sense. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily need to have read all the other ones that appear before it. I mean, ideally, people will sit down and read the book start to finish. I, I certainly hope it's uh, compelling enough that they'd want to do that. But um, it's, it's also there just, you know, if you, if you feel like five minutes of, of yoga history and philosophy to dip into on a day to day basis, you can do that. You can take one of those sections, read it, and it will be, you know, it'll be self-contained enough that it makes sense. But it will also hopefully pique your curiosity to go back to the contents page and think, oh, what else is of interest? When does the book become available for public purchase? Um, it's on January the 5th that it comes out. It's published um, in the US by Farah Strauss and Giroux, which is a division of Macmillan, and uh, it's available everywhere on, on, on the internet. But um, you can, uh, forgive me getting into marketing mode, you can already pre-order it. So uh, if you go to my website, truthofyoga.com, you can have a look there at the various ways that can be done. That's like saying, forgive me for having a drink when you're, you've entered someone's <laughs> bar. I mean... <laughs> I, my, you know, a way of being for me is promoting what people do in the Hindu studies world. Someone's in which case, I should repeat the web address, truthofyoga.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Shake and not stir. That's how I like my drink. <laughs> I'm sorry, you may have a drink. You're in a bar. Enjoy the drink. Um, uh, I'll, I'll take a chaser with that. Thank you. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I can't tell you how many times I've cringed when I receive scholarly emails announcing fantastic books or just books and the, the opening line is apologies for self-promotion i'm like who the heck wants to read what comes after that you're apologizing for what's coming next i'm like you're not promoting you you're promoting what you've discovered you're promoting yeah, the yeah. work right we're like, discouraged from doing that i think and, you know, well, in all sorts of intellectual circles partly because there's always someone is uh, you know clever and authoritative. He'll come around and try and cut your legs out from underneath you. So people are very wary of <laughs> getting getting bigger than their boots until they're one of those dinosaurs <laughs> stomping you, around. You really should say what you really mean, Daniel. Stop pussyfooting <laughs> around the issue. Um, well, I guess this is it. I mean, you know, I, I somehow feel like because I'm not really part of any institution, and and again, I'm inspired by Nick Sutton in this respect. You know, he says what he means. Um, he feels, I think, after years of getting disillusioned as an academic that you know, he's over all of that he'll say what he thinks and that's okay um and i've i've spent time in an institution i was i was, I was a journalist as i've explained and, and i was very aware i suppose without ever you know articulating these things to myself of, of where the lines were and the stuff that you don't really do and you don't really say and uh, i guess the practice of yoga for me was about finding truth beyond those you know intellectual straitjackets that we tie ourselves up in for 
you know, institutional person's purposes because we've got to keep a job and whatever. I'm, I'm in the fortunate position that I'm my own boss like you. I'm self-employed. I hopefully do things in a way that the people who employ me want to keep employing me. But uh, in the end, I think I trade by, by being you know, plain spoken. I say what I think. I, 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 I do what I say. And, you know, both of those things are things that I mean. And uh, I think that comes across. It's, it's just so much fascinating. I don't know why it's taken to this podcast for us to get on a call. I'm uh, giving a talk later this week uh, to my alma mater, uh, uh, Calgary, to their grad students. Oh, later this month, actually. I don't know. My, my planner knows where I should be. I don't really know. But um, it's basically called the self-employed scholar. It's to kind of get really, you know, bright, dynamic um, grad students to start thinking about the, the, the probability that there isn't a child waiting for them. And maybe even start thinking about the notion that it may be inviting to produce your, your own research on your own terms and, and, and fund your, your scholarship, whether through online education or whether through some consultancy or um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't think, you know, I think what people like you and I are doing is not going to be nearly as uncommon in even 50 years, certainly not within 100 I think it'll be more the norm. I think uh, a networks, a network, network silos of scholars are, in a sense, going to replace what we think of now as the ivory tower, necessarily. It certainly seems that way. And uh, as, as you pointed out, obviously the, the circumstances of this pandemic have you know really fast forwarded life ten years in that respect. Things that would have been deemed absolutely impossible have just had to happen you know, by necessity. And uh, so there's the necessity being the mother of invention and other cliches uh, people people have had to get their finger out and those who've you know for whatever other reason already done that uh, exploratory work are suddenly you know in, in a more favorable position um and i find it very interesting I, I enjoyed your podcast with seth talking about how yogic studies came into being and uh it's very interesting to see what he's done there and you know how appealing that is obviously to other academics i mean you know again i'll probably be saying too much here and <laughs> sounding a little cheeky but um I would imagine there were certain people who looked down on that at first and thought that's, you know, this guy should get his PhD rather than monkeying around with some online learning platform. And, and, yeah, but, and now they're all queuing up to, to, to you know, get, people, get a share of the earnings. <laughs> those people are like, how'd you do that? I've got grad students that are coming exactly. out, who don't have jobs and, and, and how are you do? how is this? I honestly muse. I'm like, how is any of this possible for myself? When I look outside of myself, I'm like, this guy is a, uh, you know, he's a fairly prolific, well-connected scholar without uh, institutional affiliation in the traditional sense. How is this possible? Um, and then I, I think to myself, I wish I, I wish I, I, I knew of this when I was in grad school. And then I think to myself, well, I couldn't have. It didn't exist. We're sort of like in, in the jungle with a machete here. And there's just sort of a settlement starting. But I just find it so fascinating. I, I have uh, Nick Sutton on my podcast. <laughs> he offers me a teaching job. I have Seth Powell on my podcast. He offers me a teaching job. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, I guess I need to build my own institution, then I can offer you one too. But no, no, no. We are. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's. Uh, I, I'm good for now. <laughs> I think I have. Yeah, no, it sounds like you've got plenty on your plate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, 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 I've got too many people waiting for 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 writing from me for for publication deadlines. I can't do a whole lot more teaching right now. No, fair enough. But, um, also not very institutionalized, as you can tell. But uh, I, I think there's another another point I'd like to raise based on some of these these you know analogies you've been 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 highlighting and. I think there's one that really stands out to me between the academic world and, and the yoga teaching world uh, and it's this sort of you know 
overproduction of people with qualifications that are ultimately meaningless in the job market. The, the yoga teacher training mill <laughs> is very little difference to the PhD mill. Uh, many people encouraged to get into these programs part with their hard-earned money or money they've never, never even got a prospect of earning. You know, it is some sort of future debt problem. Um, and to get into something that's not going to necessarily lead to secure employment and, and people are waking up to that and it's the bubbles burst in the yoga teaching world I think although somehow there's still teacher training programs recruiting people and thankfully getting me along to talk about philosophy so I better not be rude about them but at the same time say what you really mean Daniel don't hold back <laughs> I do th I do I, I do think though that uh, you know that's it's, it's 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 still not a problem it's good you know people learning is good um uh, uh, my favorite of Seth's hashtags is never stop learning uh, scholars should also never stop learning and uh, I therefore think it's a great idea to encourage people to step away from this idea that somehow they're going to claw their way to the top of the the tenure track pile and, and somehow make it <laughs> through the glass ceiling um instead there's just there's just so many things you can do with an education and there are so many ways that you can get the bills paid and the bills don't actually have to be very high as well that's the, i mean I'm in this slightly fortunate position because I've chosen a fairly impoverished existence. But <laughs> that's, I guess, traditionally yogic in some ways. So I can pretend I'm walking my talk. But um, no, I mean, let's let's be let's be honest. You know, obviously there, there there are career paths that look appealing, and everybody's beguiled by the prospect of walking them. So all these people paying for their 200-hour teacher training are dreaming of becoming, you know, Keno McGregor or whatever, and with big YouTube following, um, or, or whatever that woman's called in Texas, uh, yoga with Adrian. Um, so, so, you know, sure, you can do that. You don't need anybody to stop you doing that. You just get out there and do it. But you don't have to be the social media kingpin. You can do something small in your community that works. <laughs> and that's, that's also okay. We don't all have to chase the American dream of you know, shooting through the roof. Um, but there are other ways to go about it. And there's also no need to get you know, up to your eyeballs in debt. And these new models, I think, are going to provide the opportunity to get a university level postgraduate education an affordable price that you can then turn to all sorts of other objectives which would be fantastic new models is a is a key is uh, to me it's uh i'm unwilling um i am unwittingly forging a path for myself that may well be useful for others of a similar bent in a similar situation and i think you're doing the same um, um, um in terms of your book uh just one quick question about it, and then we'll talk about where you'll be able to share more on it in a couple of weeks' time. But what, I mean, there's so many threads here. I don't even know where to begin. So let me ask this generic question that always yields something interesting. What did you, were there particular um, sections that either most surprised you or most fulfilling or rewarding in some way? What stands out in your mind in terms of having written this book? You know, what, what kind of stands out in living color in your mind still <laughs> well i think it was you know it, it was harder to write than i expected um because you know i've been writing for years um, i thought i would be able to just get this churned out i set myself a target to write it in a year um it's you know from the from the time i first opened the word document and, and started jotting things in it to, to where we are now it's been been pushing three years um and I think it just it just forced me to keep reading. So uh, I discovered things I didn't really realize. I didn't I, I just didn't honestly know because nobody had drawn my attention to it until I went to the Oxford Center to, for Hindu Studies, just how rich the range of teachings was in the Mahabharata. And there isn't actually, you know, a, an easily accessible, good modern English translation of the Shanti Parvan to read them all. Um, so I was stuck, you know, sort of piecing together 
uh, misnumbered lines from <laughs> the, the Sanskrit that I was struggling to decipher from the critical edition and comparing them to Ganguly's online translation, which is you know, very hard to make sense of. Wasting whole days just to try and make sense of one line. <laughs> and so, like you know, know me. It's like you know me. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I had I, I had to go back to school, which was good, uh, and I, I think I think my work's a lot better for the fact that I didn't just crank it out. Um, it, it went through a process of being refined and edited. At one point, I was even flirting with you know going down the self-publishing route just just to make sure I could get it out the way I wanted to because it's not very easy to 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 get a book published if it's not you know fulfilling the requirements of the academic market or or. You're not somebody who's got an enormous following on social media. So uh, if, you, if you're just coming up, I've got a good book. Um, you know, you really have to plug away at it to, 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 to find a publisher. And I'm very fortunate that somebody did recognize uh, a guy who's published quite a lot of yoga books uh, for Farah Strauss and Giroux over the years, including Edwin Bryant's Yoga Sutras translation. Um, and, you know, he, he could see that it, it just did something a bit different. So, you know, all credit to Jeff Saroy for that. All credit to Zoe Slatoff for introducing me to him, and she's written a Sanskrit textbook for them as well. Um, so, you know, there, there, there are these little openings, but, but I, you know, I really had to graft at it to get it to a point where it was ready for that. So I'm glad. Well, it's, it sounds like it, but it reads to me, uh, and it sounds like uh, hearing you that it was well worth the, uh, the tapas, you know, the effort. <laughs> To to, to 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 birth this book into the world um yeah I'd be bestowed with all manner of boons as a result <laughs> <laughs> <That's too>. uh, <laughs> um you will have the opportunity to share on on this book will you not in the near future well, yes yeah raj has uh, coordinated a weekend school at the the the, the oxford center for hindu studies um so we we, we have these uh irregular online courses that, that run for several weeks at a time like many other places but we also have opportunities to join live on a zoom call um and uh really get immersed in in, in some, some you know groundbreaking material uh, we've got here 10 scholars uh, presenting on their recent publications and uh, you know, really a very broad spectrum of uh, the field of yoga research I think it's called new directions in yoga studies um, I guess my new direction is to is in some ways piggyback on the new research but uh, at the same time I don't know I think yeah uh, I'll, I'll be talking a little bit about some of the misconceptions that people have about yoga history and philosophy um, just taking one particular thing that the fact that yoga is often said to mean union yet you know you go to Patanjali's yoga sutra and union is the problem not not the solution um so we're going to look at that and then sort of go through yoga history a little bit and unpack how misconceptions can tell us the story of, 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 of you know some of what we think happened as you know yoga changed and got recombined in these different ways but so many others are going to do so many other things as well I should probably let you say a little bit about those too Oh, well, before that, I just like <laughs> I like this uh, soundbite of union is the problem, not the solution. Uh, it, it it may well describe the goal of yoga and also be a great justification for brahmacharya or or, 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 or chastity slash celibacy. Well, he certainly goes on to say that. I mean, yeah, it's another thing. You know, everybody likes to quote the yamas and niyamas and talk about them as if they're you know guys to live a lovely, harmonious life with other people, except. You know, the, 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 yamara, the yamara of Shaucha is saying, you know, avoid other people's disgusting bodies and become an ascetic and in fact, give up your own body, never mind this world at all. So, you know, people, people don't like to read the Yoga Sutra, they just like to quote it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
well, one of the uh, it, it's it's surprising to know that folks don't realize this comes from an aesthetic tradition. Or this that's comes all I'm really from... getting at. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's been repackaged and repurposed, and uh, yeah, been seized on by by the modern yoga world as our foundational text. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't say a lot of the things that people wished it would. So they translated or interpreted in ways that imply that it does. Which is a little indeed. Now, now that we've we've we thoroughly enjoyed this 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 sutra of <laughs> union is not the solution; it's the problem. <laughs> that should actually be in the yoga sutras. Maybe one day I'll write my own sutras, right? <laughs> sure. Um, the, uh, the, so the new directions in yogic studies uh, online weekend school. Uh, for those of you listening before December fifth, you can catch it uh, live. You can attend. Uh, go to ochsonline.org, um, and it's it's ten fantastic speakers. Uh, I don't know how it happened. I mean, I asked ten fantastic speakers, and they all said yes. And they all have books out um, in the last year or so. Five on Saturday afternoon UK time, five on Sunday afternoon from 12 to 6-ish. Daniel actually, come to think of it, he's kicking off the, <laughs> the entire event at noon, at midday, with the sun in the midheaven uh, <laughs> in the United Kingdom. He will be consecrating the event. Uh, I will say a Ganapati mantra before, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> you better say several, right? <laughs> How do you think I've gotten this far, honestly? Um but uh, yeah, Daniel will be will be kicking off the lineup on the Saturday. And for those of you in in, in the, the, the 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 timeless time of podcast audience, I like the word audience for podcast because it's quite literal. Like you're hearing it, right? Your podcast audience. Um, we will make available uh, the recording of the event. Uh, on the website as well i'll sort of help them sort that out i'm sure there already there's already a plan for that yeah i think with some of the others uh, certainly the one we did together in uh, september on tantra that uh, that i think you can still you know, get access to those videos as well after after the fact so it should yes, stay online indeed. and be, be you know, a bit like a you know live taught course for, for yogic studies available i think they call it sure. evergreen <laughs> so. yeah well this is what i suggested and i believe the the administrator there he says yeah you know we we're going to do that anyways because i thought i mean we have 10 speakers um uh speaking on brand new research in yogic studies and maybe folks can't make it that weekend maybe you know yeah i'm sure there'll be a number of people interested who may not be able to make it live so it's worth mentioning and apparently they've asked one dr raj balkran to host the event so if you don't care about the research and you just want shtick then by all means come and you'll you'll be well fed uh, we'll take care of you and should be fun uh what else daniel um, well, should, we, should, we, should we say a couple of words about about what what some of the other speakers are talking about? Just 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 to just to give Abs a little flavour. Um, Absolutely. Let me call it up on the screen. Um, day one, we've got um, yeah. After we've got Karen O'Brien Cop, who co-edited this Routledge uh, volume on, on yoga studies, talking about. Oh, yoga by the way, uh, we it hasn't been published yet, but two interviews ago on my desk, and there's a uh, um, two interviews ago on my desk. Uh, which hasn't been re released yet is I interview them on the on the handbook. Perfect. Uh, okay. So they'll be uh, so you'll get to hear about that uh, on the podcast as well. Please continue. Yeah. Then I think we've got um, yeah through that uh, presentation by the other co-editor Suzanne Newcomb about uh, some of the variety of, of yoga and meditation practices around the world and and some of the scholarship on them. 
Uh, and then we get right into the modern era, um, yoga consumerism and entrepreneurial gurus, um, as, 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 as well as you know so, so some of the, uh, the the deconstructions of some of the ways that go wrong uh, with uh, yoga and Me Too on, on day two. Uh, we've got Nick Sutton talking about his his uh, his new course on the Yoga Sutras, which is based on his recently published translation. Uh, oh, where are we? Uh, yoga among the spiritual, but not religious. So this 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 weird sort of I guess you know white <laughs> or might be termed appropriation of yoga. And what do you have against white people, anyways? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what what scholars have against white people. Sometimes I'm not I'm not sure I buy this category of uh, of uh, analytical uh, sort of um, I guess. Uh, presentation of, of, of whiteness is saying as much as I think Americans think it does. I think it applies particularly in a the context there that it doesn't translate so well. <laughs> and American scholars might sometimes reflect on that to their benefit, I think. Irrespective of Daniel's views or my, <laughs> my own unspoken views, you can learn about the spiritual and our religious joke <laughs> at the event. Yes, indeed. indeed. <laughs> But yeah, it's a, a, a rich, a rich mix of things, and also I think yeah, Anya Foxen talking on, on the, the end of the first day about some of the ways in which you know some of the things that have actually made yoga what you know, what it looks like today in the Western world are are, are actually Western. <laughs> so uh, there's, there's a whole tradition of you know Western esotericism, Western roots of yoga, right? Exactly, it gets gets sort of buried when people people are obsessed with you know this, the, the the endless lineage from Patanjali to to my teacher, um, and. It's, it's sometimes more profitable to look at some of those ways in which you know that these were inspiring influences on you know very prominent uh, Indian innovators in the early 20th century, uh, whether it's uh, you know, Yogananda or, or um, Yogendra, some of the people who really shaped the ways in which you know the world was made aware of, of, of yoga practice. So yeah, lots to talk about. Uh, lots to talk about. Should be lots of fun. Um, I'll definitely see you there. I I'm hosting it and you're kicking it off. So if we're not there at the outset, be a problem. something's going terribly wrong. We'll have to get, Lal Krishna will have to get on stage and play the maracas. <laughs> yes, no, he'll be doing asanas. <laughs> Anyhow, I think that's enough tomfoolery for one uh, year on this podcast. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is, uh, honest to God, Daniel and I, I think I tend to uh, a, a meeting at one point about teaching months ago and then he was a speaker at the tantra uh, uh, online school in september i think he came on right after i did or right before when i was a speaker and we've had no interaction aside from booking this podcast and i i think we need to speak more obviously and not resort to getting to know each other on the air <laughs> well i think at the same time you know while we're banging the drum of uh, online education uh, it just goes to show that uh, connections can really get fired up by by this medium um, it's it's possible to 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 you know really have a a, a very uh, immersive and enriching interactive experience uh, through through online learning portals in a way that people i don't think appreciated even 12 months ago well uh, it for my own journey, I was deeply prejudiced against online learning. I'm very sort of um, personal network, handshake, face-to-face -face kind of guy. It's just how I roll. Um, and also, in addition to that, I have I have had some wonderful tutors, and I had a, a traditional teacher. And so the parampara training is face-to-face, -face, you know, live transmission, one-on-one. -on -one. And so I was really, really um, weary. Uh, um, uh, cynical, uh, uncharacteristically cynical about 
the ability to actually impact someone through the online medium. And boy, uh, did I go from a cynic to a convert to now, uh, you know, proselytizing essentially. But uh, it's it's astonishing to me actually that one can have a deeply impactful experience and not be in the same room uh, to the point where um, as of, I think, 2017, 2018, before COVID, I stopped finding space uh, to see clients, all clients I see on Zoom, uh, yeah, even before COVID or on the phone. And if I know them fairly well and it's not, I don't need the visual cues as, you know, we're, we're engaged in a different kind of work, I can do the phone, but it's astonishing that people can have transformations uh, uh, through learning and through coaching uh, through an online medium. I mean, I still can't quite wrap my mind around it, but suffice it to say, my doubts about its efficacy have been dispelled. Mine too. Yeah, uh, it's been it's been an interesting few years, and uh, yeah, long may it continue. <laughs> long may it rain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's certainly raining here, but not that kind of rain. <laughs> yes, yes. How cliche! It's raining uh, in the UK. Um, well, for those of you, what's that? I was going to say thank you very much. Yeah. You're very welcome. Uh, I'll sign off and you can stay on a bit. Uh, um, uh, for those of you listening, still listening, anyhow, <laughs> uh, I've been speaking with Daniel Simpson uh, of the Oxford Center of Hindu Studies uh, on his really fascinating uh, publication, a very unique, uh, succinct style, accessible and comprehensive uh I recommend you look at it if you're interested in yoga. It's The Truth of Yoga, a comprehensive guide to yoga's history, texts, philosophy, and practices. It's probably available for pre-order already. Um, yes, uh, truthofyoga.com. I'll, I'll be outspoken again. <laughs> wonderful. See, he is capable of learning. Good. Uh, truthofyoga.com. Go there, get the book. Until next time, what do you need to do? Here are your instructions. You need to stay safe. You need to keep listening and reading and keep contemplating the tapestry that is yoga. Take care.